Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with Monet Noel Marshall. Monet is an artist, director, playwright, curator, producer, and cultural organizer. A 2018 Independent Weekly Arts Award winner, she serves as the founding artistic director of Mojoa Performing Arts Company. Recent projects include the Buy It, Call It performance installations, which earned her the 2018 Mary B. Regan Community Artist Fellowship from the North Carolina Arts Council. You can learn more about her upcoming work at monetnoelmarshall.com. Monet describes her writing and development process for her play, Resonor, autobiographical writing, supporting Southern Black playwrights through her upcoming podcast, Red Clay Plays, and her theater company, Mojoa. This interview was recorded virtually on March 20th, 2020, so we do touch on the COVID-19 crisis. If you have the resources to do so, I encourage you to donate to individual artists and to artist funds at the local and national level. I will include some of those links in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Monet. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you so much, Tamara. How are you? I am good. Like many people, I'm feeling the strain and I'm feeling tired. And at the same time, I recognize that I am in a very privileged position. So I'm kind of in this in-between space and trying to fill it and at the same time trying to balance having both of my children at home and making progress on my creative work and having a lot of anxiety about my friends and their their livelihood. So that's the space that I'm occupying right now. How are you? I'm okay. I'm trying really hard to push back on the doing. I'm trying to be present and just listen um, to what this moment is offering me and offering us. A big question I've been sitting with is what does it mean that I have tied so many of my dreams in to institutions that may not exist? Sitting with that and really sitting with like, my purpose and my gifts and how I can best show up and how I can make sure that I'm showing up because that's what is needed and not because that'll make my ego feel good. Mm. So that's what I'm sitting with. And also in a position, you know, I was been, I was working on a couple projects. So has some checks that are in the mail as long as the mail keeps running to help me get through this period. But beyond that, I am like, I don't know. And but stressing about it right now is not helpful. So that's where I am. I know you are available as a creative consultant, and that's something that you can do virtually. It seems like that would be an important way to support artists who are also sitting with the questions that you are sitting with at this time. Yeah. I love talking to artists. I also work with organizations and small businesses mainly working at the intersection of art and culture, community-based practice, and equity. How, how do we just make our program, our art, our arts and culture offerings, our arts and culture organizations, how do we make them all more equitable? So yes, that is some work. And I have um, done work with a client, like virtually, 
And it feels like a weird time to be on a marketing spree. <laughs> mm. You know, it just feels like it feels like a it feels like strange times at Ridgemont High. It's very hard to know how to promote our own work at this moment. And at the same time, I feel like people are really hungry for some sort of communion, some sort of community experience. And part of that is renegotiating at least temporarily what community means and how we reach out and how we shore each other up. It's just very confusing at this moment to know how to best navigate these waters. Absolutely. I would like to talk about your work as a playwright with a focus on your recent staged reading of Raisinor. Your reading happened two weeks ago. Would you talk about from your perspective as a playwright about the value of having a reading and then more specifically what that particular staged reading meant to you? Absolutely. So at least for me as a playwright, I feel like I my draft process is not actually done until that draft has been read out loud. Because I think I can read it and read it and feel like, okay, I like where it is, but something happens, it activates, it breathes when other people are reading it out loud and bringing their life into it. It's just part of the, for me, it's just part of the writing process. And I think because I actually don't like doing things alone, like the creative, I like the creative part where it's like five people in the room or we're in rehearsal or, you know, we're working on a script or like what I, I like the collaborative part of it. So sometimes for me, the writing is actually difficult, but I know I want to do the writing because I want to be in the room and make this work come out into the world. The reading just always feels important to me. That particular reading felt important um, because it was at North Star Church of the Arts, which is one of my creative homes here in Durham. It was presented by Jamika Holloway, Burrell, and Aaron Bell. And Jamika presented a stage reading of it when it was in an earlier draft a few years ago in 2018. I thought it was done then. And then the play told me that it was not done and that there was more to say. And then just in the last couple of weeks before the reading, I realized, so the play has these eight different characters, different ages, races, genders. And a couple of weeks before the reading, I was like, oh, I want them to be all played by Black women and gender non-conforming actors all the time, but played in earnest. And so that was like a new development that that reading was the first time that I actually got to see that play out and to see in this case, eight women on this eight black women on the stage reading this play. It just, it made so much more sense to me, like the whole world of the play just, and it just did my heart good to be like, Oh, I can write a play that has eight black women in it. And they can be all on stage together and they can have that moment where they look around the room and there's eight Black women at the table. I'd like to dig a little bit more into the experience of hearing your work out loud. I think that it is crucial to have at least my plays read out loud. As you mentioned, it, it's an important step <laughs> in getting, you have to get that feedback or you can't finish the piece. But it's also for me just as like cascade of emotions because I feel like excited and I feel triumphant and I feel kind of vulnerable and sometimes embarrassed and confused. Like it's so many things going on at the moment. I am curious, after your first reading several years ago, 
what information did you get from that reading? What was your experience? And then take us through kind of the steps of like, how did you gather that feedback? What did you do with it? Then we had this most recent reading. What feedback did you get from that? And then what are you going to do with it? The first reading happened at the Bull City Black Theater Fest in March 2018. It was the first time I was having a play read in this community. So in, in general, if I have to go to my own thing, but I don't have anything to do, my butt is clenched the whole time. Just like tight sink there because I just, <laughs> there's nothing for me to do with my hands. And then I feel really awkward. And then people like want me to be myself. I'm like, oh my God, Monet, hey. And I just want to sit in the corner in a hoodie with my head down and just pretend to not be me. So, But the main thing that I got from the first reading was this woman came up to me and told me that the Black man character in the piece was, um, she was like, he's not done. He's underdeveloped. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and I could—I don't think I could really hear it then. I think also this piece is, has a lot of autobiographical elements in it. Yeah, like the main character is named after my mom. And then there's this whole development. It's, it's very autobiographical. And I think I, I just couldn't hear that in the moment. So I kind of put the play down. If I saw calls for one X, I would like submit it here and there, but it wasn't getting much traction. And then I had a theater experience that made me, I don't know, something about this experience, just something in me was like, oh, that play is not done. And there's more to say here. And you actually left a lot on the table. And again, because it was autobiographical, I realized that in the play, I did the thing that I often do in my own life where I show one hand and I'm like, look how vulnerable I'm being. Look over here, look over here. But it's a sleight of hand trick. And I really, I want to hide things that are happening on the other hand. Hmm. So taking it from a one act to a full length, like a, yeah, from like a 30 minute, 40 minute play, it's like a more full length hour, hour 15 play made me dig and do the work of becoming a lot more vulnerable about things that I don't share. And I also think that I needed to, I needed to live through some things in order to write that. In the second reading, the feedback I received is like, because it's so autobiographical, how would this play read for folks who don't know me personally or don't know of me and it's, or it's not done in my community? Like what, what will that look like and feel like? So that's something that I'm working on how to find that right balance of meanness and also universalness and to make it clear that so one of the things that happened in the reading is that because it was eight black women they they started changing the pronouns of the characters and I was like no 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 like these black women actors are playing like a black woman is playing a black man a black woman is playing a little kid a black woman is playing a white woman like don't change like they're not changing based on the the actor or the performer like the characters are still the same but just because all these characters are existing inside of one woman this one black woman they're all a black woman's version of what she thinks these people are so that was like an interesting note that that in the script didn't necessarily land with them and how to make that clearer and also, like, to talk to other folks, 
especially black women, black women specifically, and for them to say like, oh, this is me. Yeah, like I also have a white girl in my head or I also have a little kid running around in my head or, you know, like to get these very honest responses of like, I saw myself, that was me. It made me feel like my job is closer to being done in this piece. So it's my opinion, and other people might not hold this opinion, that most creators create from inside themselves some internal struggle or things that they're trying to work out. And some people go straight at that, very obviously, and some people kind of go at a slant. And I tend to be somebody who kind of goes at a slant where I pretend like I'm not actually writing about things that I'm working out. And then all of a sudden, I wind up with a play that is clearly coming from my own struggles. And I cloak it in these different characters that don't seem like me, but they are me. And it seems like you come at this in a more straightforward way. It feels to me like it's honest and vulnerable, but I like that you are clear about the value of writing through your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Why do you make that choice? How do you approach this? (laughs) Part of me wants to give you a smart answer. And another part is like, because you're lazy, Monet. Um, No, not because I'm lazy. I, I, I just think that I have gone and seen lots of shows and lots of theaters. And I feel like I don't see myself very often. I feel like I don't see a Black woman in her full complexity who is not just like a traumatic character or just like the best friend or, you know, oh, clearly that part was written for a white woman because there's no real analysis of the fact that her race and her gender would make this moment different for her than someone else. Like, I just feel like I don't, I often don't see myself in all my fullness on stage. So then my, sometimes my writing goal is, okay, really thinking about it from beginning to end. One, what story is calling to me? Two, what type of rooms do I want to be in as a writer, as a director, as an actor? What stories do I want to be telling? And then as an audience member, what do I want to see? What questions do I want to be asked? What do I want to look around and experience with other people? And I think that pushes me. Also, for me, playwriting, it took me a while to accept that title and to do the work of being a playwright, even though I've been writing plays since I was 12 years old, because playwriting was my mom's thing. And it just felt like, like my mother has an MFA in playwriting. And it so just felt like, well, she's the playwright. I'm the director. Here are our roles. So I just think it took me a while to get past that. So the, the easiest access point for me was to write about myself and to see what happened like also I started writing this play when I was like 21 or 22 years old I think there was a part of me that was writing because I didn't have a job and I just got out of school and it just like was something consistent to do every morning for a while and I think there's a part of me that didn't actually believe that anyone would ever read it or see it either right so you didn't feel as self-conscious yeah 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 so first of all I know so many creators of original work who feel very reticent to call themselves playwrights. So I think that we must have internalized that playwriting has to be done in a certain way, that our plays have to look a certain way, that we have to have a certain type of education in order to receive the title of playwright. 
it's really interesting. I've been talking to several people and I include myself in this category. It's like, I can't actually call myself a playwright because I don't have a degree in this and no one taught me how to do it. I've just been kind of making it up by myself, even though I have written a lot of plays. (laughs) So I don't know what that's about, but it's interesting that we're seeing that come up over and over again. Yeah. I really feel like, and I, I also see this in like other spaces, but I see this because no one has given us a piece of paper, like <laughs> like the lion in the Wizard of Oz, like and told us that we are smart, that we are like walking around like, well, it's not real until someone tells me I'm real. <laughs> and it's like, well, the whole thing is made up. It's all made up. All the schools, all the institutions, and then everything we're writing is also made up. So like whose permission are we waiting for? And yet that feeling persists. I appreciate that you are giving people permission. In my opinion, you're giving people permission to write about themselves because you are implying that the stories that we have are valuable, that our lived experiences or our dreams of what could be are important. And we don't always have to be telling other people's stories We can generate material from our very own lives and hopes and dreams and struggles. And I think that for many people, it goes against what our culture tells us. So I appreciate that you are very forthright about all of that. Thank you. I think I'm just doing the thing that makes me want to keep writing as opposed to trying to do something or be someone else or because that just that just does not feel sustainable to me. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. Writing is hard enough, let alone trying to be somebody else while you're doing it. Right. (laughs) That just feels torturous. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Let's talk about your podcast plan. The name of your podcast is Red Clay Plays. Would you talk a little bit about why you've decided to do these? As someone who very much has really big, ambitious dreams about my theater life, but also has no desire to move back to New York or to be in L.A. I mean, I love visiting New York, but I love living in Durham. I love living in North Carolina. It's my ancestral home, and I don't want to be anywhere else. But that doesn't mean that my dreams are any smaller. And I feel like there is this idea that in order to be a real artist, you need to go to New York or you need to go to LA or even DC or just someplace bigger where someone can notice you and then you can become a famous writer and live happily ever after. And I'm like, no, actually, I really want to be here. I want to be in North Carolina. This is where my family is. I want to have a family here. Like, I want to be here. So, how do we support Southern Black playwrights, especially when? A lot of the playwrights, Black playwrights specifically, that are writing in New York or D.C. or L.A. or or Chicago, a lot of them are writing Southern stories because they are from the South. (laughs) And instead, why don't we find new ways to support Southern Black playwrights who are living currently in the South? So that was where the idea came from and just seeing how I'll look at playwriting opportunities and the opportunities for Southern playwrights are so slim. They're just so slim. And with all this technology, it doesn't make sense to me that I'll see a, like a playwriting group or playwriting residency or, or playwriting opportunities. It's like, but you have to live within 
30 miles or 30 minutes of the New York metro area. And it's like, why? And I feel like that's one of the things that this moment, the pandemic is showing. Like, actually, we have so many other ways to connect. We're just choosing not to. So I'm starting this podcast that centers plays and work of Southern Black playwrights that currently live in the South. So each playwright will get two episodes, one where they have plays read by local actors, and then another episode will be an interview with them about what they're working on and their dreams and what does it mean to be a creator in the South and what institutions do they wish were supporting us. And yeah, and I'm excited to get to talk to folks and to read more work. I love this idea, Monet, and you are going to make some playwrights very happy with this. We haven't talked about Mojoa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, in connection to, so the one of the things that inspired the podcast is, one, I've been on New Play Exchange, and I'm sure that you talk about New Play Exchange often. And for anyone who does not know what it is, and you're a playwright, or you like to read plays, you should join because it's fantastic. So I went on New Play Exchange and I did a search by like for each state, Black playwrights in each state. And there were just like some states that, some Southern states like Alabama, where there were no Black playwrights listed from the state. And I know that it's a self-selection, but still I'm like, people are missing out on resources out here. Like, but I was doing it also because Mojoa, we're doing um, Reclamation again this year. We've done it three out of the last four years. And it started when we were doing Escape to Freedom at Mordecai Historic Park. We started that in 2015. We would have rehearsals on this land that was a plantation and still has the original big house. And some people would use it as a park. I mean, it is a park by the city, but those people were never Black people. And I'm like, oh, what does it mean that this place of trauma and hurt and harm is a park for some people and other people don't even step foot on it. So we did Reclamation in 2016. And then again, and we did short plays and monologues by women of color. And we performed them on the front steps of the big house to reclaim that space. And then we did it again in 2017 with men of color. We did it in 2018 plays by or about elders of color. And then we took a break last year and we're bringing it back this year to do work, all comedic plays and monologues by playwrights of color. And that'll be August 22nd. I really love the network of playwrights that we've been in relationship to. There's one playwright in particular, Russell Nichols, who has submitted work for every call that he was eligible for. And him and his wife are both playwrights and they are traveling that they backpack around the world. And somehow he saw our call and just like reading his work over time. I've never met this person, but it really feels like we have this artistic relationship and that work and just seeing how hungry playwrights are, playwrights of color are for work, for spaces to share their work. has also been an inspiration for this podcast to narrow even further. So there's, there's that. And then also with the, my play Resonor, it was supposed to get its world premiere at Bennett college in a few weeks at Bennett, but I don't think that's going to happen but that opened up one of my dreams, which is 
I really want HBCUs to historically Black colleges and universities that have theater programs or teach theater to commit to producing work by playwrights, Black playwrights in their state, like one a year or one every other year. And I think there should be funding from the NEA or from local arts councils to make that happen. Because one of the things that I've noticed, I went to North Carolina Agricultural Technical State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. And one of the things I've noticed that if we don't support living Black playwrights, people that are creating roles for Black actors, then it feels negligent to keep giving people theater degrees and sending them out in the world. Because most people are not, no matter how much people want to say, look how more diverse we are, da, da, da. They always, <laughs> like the numbers are still about the same. Like they actually, like the change is so incremental and slow. It's ridiculous. And people are still getting asked in rehearsal rooms to sound more black. They're still like, it's just, it's just all of the, the micro and macro aggressions are still happening. And I really feel like until we support black playwrights, just as much as we're supporting and pushing out Black actors with degrees, then it's going to continue to happen. And if we have a healthier arts ecosystem, then folks can, they can live where they want to live. They can stay in the South. They don't have to go be in the hubbub of New York if they don't want to, or they can just have more time to figure out, to learn, to just to be here. And we don't have to have this like artistic drain that if you want to go to a certain level, you have to leave the South. That That's also why that's some of the reason that I wanted to start the podcast and how it connects back to Mojoa and the work that we're doing. And oh, we also had a world premiere set up of a play by a Texas-based playwright, Thomas Brazel, set uh, for March 26th. It's being pushed back to July. Um, and the information will be on our website. Yeah, and like to really live into who we want to be. We want to be producing more work, more new work by living Black playwrights. Because I love, I love Raising the Sun. I love August Wilson. I love The Mountaintop. I love this work. And I, I want to get to a place where you can't even name all of the, the the Black playwrights that are creating work right now. And right now, you kind of still can. You can kind of put it a couple handfuls of what the regional the playwrights that regional theaters are producing. Um, and I would really love Mojoa to be part of the long game where when you look 10, 15, 20 years, you look back at the the production history of these plays. And you're like, oh, I didn't know this play premiered at Mo- like Mojoa premiered this play. I didn't know this play premiered in Raleigh. I didn't know that Mojoa produced this. I didn't know. I didn't know. I just want to be a part of uplifting folks who have amazing things to say and amazing stories to tell. And I don't want them to be forgotten. I respect and appreciate so much your commitment and Mojoa's commitment to cultivating local and regional artists. Thank you so much for doing that because we do have an incredible amount of talent that exists here. And I feel sad when people leave, you know, they get to a certain point and then they're gone. And why not, why not keep us together? Because it also, for some people, they reach a certain level and they can't leave, you know, like I'll only speak for myself, but I'm here and I'm here because this is where my spouse lives and this is where our money is and I can't and I have two children and this is where I am. I still desire to have opportunities 
and it looks like I'm going to need to make them for myself, but I appreciate that you are generating opportunities for other people who are just as talented as folks from the big city or from the North or whatever. (laughs) I think there is a thing. One, thank you. Yes. And for me, like, I mean, I'm not married. I don't have any children. I could go. I'm from New York. I could go back home, but I don't want to. And I think Mm -hmm. that I should, I deserve to live an artist's life and lean into my own desire of being in a town where I can smile at people and drive a little bit slower and go to events and know I'm going to see my people. And I know that in New York, people create their own communities. And I just, my mama lives 40 minutes from here. Like, I like that. I like being Mm -hmm. able to see her. My brothers live in Raleigh. I like that. I like being able to have dinners with them. And I want to be able to choose this life and make this life possible because North Carolina is home to me in a lot of ways. And I don't want to have to give it up. And if anyone who lives in New York and has listened to this podcast, I just want to let you know that y'all are not better. You just have more resources. Let's be clear. <laughs> but I do think that there's a, and I think I even had it growing up. Like when I'll come to visit North I'm like, they so slow. Why you do this? It's like, no, no, no. Like just everybody, let's check our ego. You're not better. You just, there are more billionaires. So they have to, they spend more money and they give more money to the arts. And then there are more resources. Like that's actually it. That's, that's it. Um, and if we had access to more resources, we would have our own things too. <sighs> yes. I'll get off my soapbox around that. I appreciate your soapbox. <laughs> and now we have and now we have microphones and we have the internet. And so we can put our work out in the ways that you were talking about to the global community. And I think that's what our future is going to look like, at least for this next year. So my great hope is that we can make some strides in presenting our work to people in this new way and see what that does for us as a community. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we close up, given that we are in the time of pandemic? Mm. Do you have any words for artists who are, I don't know, seeking inspiration or just a word? I would say that capitalism has us all the way mucked up out here in that we have lost our relationship to rest and we've lost our relationship to play for play's sake and not to be misled by anyone who tells us that we need to be productive in this time. We are in unprecedented times and we get to have an unprecedented response. So if that response looks like bubble baths and laying in bed till 11 and binge watching the show that you wanted to watch, do that. If it looks like getting a huge spark of inspiration and writing all day and all night and drinking seven cups of coffee, do that. If it looks like just sitting and looking at the wall and because you don't know what to do, do that. I think that this moment is offering us the opportunity to get back in right relationship with our own rhythms And I think it's only from those rhythms that we'll be able to find our own truth and from our own truth, fantastic art, like just wells up and springs forth. So 
Yes, I, like many of you, am worried about money and worried about my friends and worried about the state of theater. And I also know that this we are part of an institution that is has been around since we've been around. So as long as we around, we're around, it's not going to go anywhere. And we are not going anywhere. Our gifts are not gone. Even if the buildings were to crumble and the grants were to dry up, our gifts, our talents, our passions, our relationships, our community is not actually going anywhere. So take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Spend time with the people you love that you in ways that you can. And be sweet to yourself. And listen. Listen, listen, listen to what comes up. And I can't wait to see you in the theater on the other side. Thank you so much, Monet. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Of course. Thanks, Tamara. You're the best. Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, please see our website, www.artistsoapbox.org. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. <laughs>